0: Welcome back to the 90 Days New Podcast. Today we are looking at the pastoral epistles. These are some writings of Paul that are referred to as pastoral because they are written to men who Paul has appointed as pastor or elder in certain areas of his ministry. As Paul's traveled and has already made uh, several rounds of missionary trips throughout uh, Asia Minor and into Uh, Greek territories, we see that he has a need for other men to step up and to carry on the work of evangelism and missions and teaching, and and so he begins to appoint leaders in various areas, and we have um, two here that we'll look at, um, two books to Timothy and one book to, uh, to a man named Titus, and Timothy was appointed as a pastor in the area around Ephesus, while Titus was appointed to the island of Crete and if you get out a map and you take a look that's going to be just south of uh, where Ephesus is and it lays in the Mediterranean and this area like all areas were much in need of pastoral leadership especially in the early era before Christianity had really had a chance to materialize and for doctrinal integrity to be established Um, It seems like today a lot of our churches, if uh, they're without a pastor for a year or so, they continue to maintain some doctrinal integrity. We've established enough writings, and we've, um, uh, we've got creeds and other things like that that can help keep us on course. But in these early eras, they didn't have all that. They didn't have a completed Bible yet, and so it was very easy to be swayed off course. And Paul even references that in several areas. He talks about people's faith being shipwrecked. He talks about people swerving from the faith. And so these are situations that he's trying to avoid by appointing leaders who are sound. And as we look at these pastoral epistles, there's a lot we could talk about. They pack a very heavy punch in a small amount of content, but there are about four things that we could really break this down into. He talks about church order. He talks about sound doctrine. He tells them that they need to live out the word. So it's not just teaching sound doctrine, but living sound doctrine. And then they need to turn around and build up others. So those are the four areas that we'll kind of build our conversation around today. Now let's start with sound doctrine. As we look at First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus, Paul references sound doctrine over and over, and um, we can break that down into several areas as well. He, he says that sound doctrine, obviously, is the teaching that has been passed down to him from Paul himself. So Paul has instructed Timothy. Timothy is considered Paul's son in the faith, not a biological son, but probably a convert under Paul's evangelistic endeavors as he moved through Uh, The area of Lystra and as Timothy and his family, we know that his mother and grandmother were believers and they would probably have been highly influential in young Timothy's life. But between them and Paul, uh, he has been given instruction of what is correct and what is true. He's been called out of the pagan society in which he lived, and uh, we don't know much about his father, uh, but we do know that he was a Greek, and so there's a very strong possibility that these Greek roots and this Greek territory within which he lived had a lot of influence on Timothy's life, and he was departing from the worldview that he'd grown up in, and he is clinging now to the Christian doctrine that Paul has been passing on to him. And of course, Paul roots this in inspiration. It's in 2 Timothy 3 um, that we get this idea that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and that word breathed is the same word that we uh, get spirit from, and um, what it's saying is that all Scripture is inspired. The Holy Spirit is behind those writings, and so both the Old Testament writings and the New Testament writings have come together by the same person, the influence of the person of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit uh, directing men to write, and obviously their uh, personalities come through the writing. It's a writing that is um, both divinely inspired and divinely authored, uh, but also Written by human hands. And so Paul is telling young Timothy and young Titus that they need to cling to the scriptures because that's where authority is found. That's where truth is found in the Word of God. And um, that Word obviously has been passed down to them by the apostles. And as they are inspired, they're continuing to write scripture. And uh, the letter itself becomes scripture, which reminds us that this isn't just a letter for Timothy's sake. And it's not just a letter for Titus's sake, but it's a letter for all of our sakes, um, especially for pastors, but not just for pastors. It's important that we read um, the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus so that we understand what our pastors should be like. We can understand the qualifications and what their duties are, what their responsibilities are. We can understand what our responsibility is to the pastor uh, as lay people. We understand what our roles are in the church because this addresses our ecclesiastical um, roles and and organizations, our structures. And so this is um, an important letter that we need to consider and reflect upon. Uh, One of the things he says when he's talking about sound doctrine, though, is that they need to avoid quarrels and foolish disputes. Now, there are a lot of controversial passages in these books that we could park on and say, hmm, I wonder what this means. For instance, uh, uh, 1 Timothy 2 says that a woman will be saved through childbearing. You know, We could stop and talk about that, and maybe I'll address that here if we have enough time at the end, but... um, I'm more concerned about this one where it says to avoid quarrels and foolish disputes because not only does it say that in 2 Timothy 2.33, but it also says this in Titus 3.9. Now, the reason that this gives me such pause and really becomes controversial to me as I look at it is because the rest of the writing of these pastoral epistles encourage young Timothy and Titus to challenge false doctrine. He tells them to rebuke and he tells them to correct. In fact, he says that all scripture is breathed out for those very purposes, to rebuke and to correct and to to make sure that people know how to live. But then when he says avoid quarrels and foolish disputes, I have to sit there and say, wait a minute, do I avoid false teaching or do I rebuke false teaching? Which is it? And so I had to do a little digging here, and I think what my conclusion is here is that when he says to avoid quarrels and foolish disputes, one thing he's saying is that when you rebuke and when you are correcting false doctrine, you do it in a gentle way. One of the very qualifications of a pastor is that he is to be gentle. And so then this is true for everybody, not just for pastors. A lot of the qualifications for pastors are to be applied to everyone. The pastor just has to live them out as an example for everyone so that they will know how to do that. And so we're to be gentle and we're not to quarrel. Uh, The word quarrel is mentioned six times in these three books. And so that ratio is pretty strong considering how little content there is in uh, these short books. And so we are to be people who live peacefully, and we don't, we're not out looking for a fight. We're not out looking to, to make a mockery out of somebody and um, win an argument to humiliate anybody. That's not our goal. Our end goal is to lead people to the truth. And so I think that's one of the things that he's bringing out here. But I also think that he's telling us to avoid foolish disputes because there are some people who are so bent on arguing and debating without any hope of actually changing their mind on any particular issue, that it is a complete waste of time to enter into a conversation with them. And while we might know people like this and we could apply this uh, on that level, I think there's another level that is very applicable for us today that would not have been anything Paul was thinking about in his day because he didn't have access to this and that's social media and just the internet in general. There are so many times where I'm reading a news article or I'm uh, you know, just looking online and people will begin to comment and their comments frustrate me so much because they're so wrong. I just look at them like, you're just wrong here. And part of me wants to get in there and duke it out with them and tell them why they're wrong. But then uh, over time, I've kind of learned that that's a waste of my time. No one changes their opinion based on internet disputes and internet arguments if they're really out to seek for truth the best thing to do would be to sit down with them one on one or you could you could you know argue back and forth i guess privately in a private message and maybe then there could actually be some dialogue that has some intrinsic value but for the most part when you dispute with people online in the public arena they're just out to win an argument. That's what they're out to do. They don't want to be humiliated by losing in front of all these people. So they're really not considering anything that you're saying. And you might uh, say, well, I planted a seed for later for them to think about. Yeah, maybe, but uh, I would just go with what he says here and avoid those kind of disputes. I think that's what he's getting at when he's talking about sound doctrine here. Um, So not only do we teach sound doctrine, not only is that important that we instruct properly, but that we live out these teachings. And so well, that's really important to Paul here because he mentions good works 13 times in these three books. The phrase good works shows up 13 times. And that doesn't even account for all the other ways that he expresses that sentiment. To, to live a life that's holy and righteous and, and just and to, to be charitable to show love, all the different ways that he could express good works. uh, We're just counting the times that he says it like that. And, And so the book really is just saturated with the different ways that we are to live because we have sound doctrine in our lives. And so it's so important that we not only study the scripture so that we know what it says, but that we live it out. Going back to the qualifications of leaders, that's why he calls on them to live these lives the way that they're supposed to. And any pastor that does not exemplify the sound doctrine that they're teaching, they are disqualified at that point from being pastor because they cannot show the people how to live they can tell the people how to live but they can't show the people how to live and so that's why he has those qualifications for both pastors and for deacons and really anybody that holds a a role in the church that um, is looked up to as a leader i think that could be said that they too must fit this uh, qualification Um, that's why i don't want uh, people in the praise team who aren't living lives that are exemplifying sound doctrine. I don't want people in the Sunday school uh, area teaching Sunday school classes that are living lives contrary to what the Word of God says. In previous church contexts, I've removed people that I thought were not living the life that exemplifies the teachings of doctrine, um, the sound doctrine. And so it's so important that our leaders uphold those teachings with their practices in their life. Uh, Another thing that we want to talk about is uh, the building up of others to do the same. That's one of the things that uh, Paul encourages Timothy and Titus to do is to not only teach sound doctrine, not only to live it out and exemplify it in their lives, but also to teach others to do the same uh, so that they can teach others. It's kind of this chain of discipleship that we see take place. One of the best uh, instances of this is in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 2, and it says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul has entrusted the gift of teaching and pastoring to Timothy, and Timothy is supposed to turn around and entrust it to faithful men that they find uh, that they can entrust this office to, who will also in turn entrust it to other faithful men. And so the chain goes, we don't let it die with us or die with our convert and our disciple, but we continue to pass on the legacy of sound doctrine so that generations to come, will be able to reap the benefit of walking with Christ and walking in his word. Now, Paul does warn that he can't be too quick to uh, lay his hands on a potential pastor and uh, establish an authority Upon them uh, through that process of what we would today call ordination, he warns him about doing that too hastily because they need to prove themselves. In fact, one of the qualifications of a pastor is that they are not to be a novice, they're not to be a new convert. They need to have established themselves and to demonstrate that they can persevere through trials and through um, the corruption that is in our societies. And when we get in a hard place where we have to either do the right thing or, or, um, or suffer the consequences, and you know, people that are new to the faith have not always proven themselves in that capacity, and so it's very important to Paul that Timothy establishes sound leaders who meet those qualifications. Um, But another thing, as we're talking about pastors and elders and uh, deacons and that sort of thing, that brings us to the idea of church order. Paul addresses church order here. He lays out these offices that a church is best Uh, It is healthiest, I guess I should say, when they have elders and pastors there to teach. Now, you can be a church and not have a pastor. Uh, We see this all the time when churches are between pastors. That doesn't mean that they're not a church at that moment. It just means that they're not in an ideal state. They're supposed to have pastors and elders, overseers, to help walk them through the uh, life help them walk through God's word and to understand it and to study it and to apply it. And that's just how God has designed his church. Uh, Churches are healthiest when they have servants, uh, deacons. That's what the word deacon means. So these servants, those serving in this capacity, are fulfilling a lot of the the needs, a lot of the daily tasks and, and that sort of thing in the church. That's when a church is healthiest. Uh, he lays out order for widows, and we don't really have a lot of uh, modern relationship to these ideas that are put forth in First and Second Timothy regarding widows. Um, when I read it, I think more like nuns uh, in a Catholic monastery or something to that effect, but um, it, apparently in their day, there were widows who once they were past childbearing age and they were beyond the age that anybody would want to marry them, uh, they would serve the church and they would dedicate the rest of their lives to serving the church. And in return, the church would meet the needs. You know, They would feed them and they would clothe them and they would provide for them. Uh, and Paul advised against having young women come into that Uh, role and serve in that capacity and so these this was a kind of an office not necessarily an office but it was a role for church service that was dedicated to those who had lost their husbands in the past but he warns against who to put into that position and who not to put into that position so we have more um going on there uh, than what we're probably accustomed to dealing with. And a lot of that is because now we have Social Security and other ways of taking care of women who have lost their husbands. But back then, they didn't really have any way except for a family to take care of them. And these women that were serving the church and being mutually reciprocated in the benefits of serving the church uh, financially, they probably didn't have anyone to lean on. They didn't have any children to take care of them. They didn't have a husband. And so without the help of the state, without the help of the church, they would be destitute. And uh, so there are other things we could say and talk about in regards to the offices um, and and church polity, but we'll move on from there to to a final word. In 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul tells Timothy this. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands for God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. I think the reason he tells him this is not because young Timothy has already started to depart from the faith or anything like that, uh, but I know or I think that Paul knows that there is a strong temptation to slowly but surely lose that passion that one has when they first become a believer and when they first answer a a major call like going into ministry. Uh, Early on, uh, you can recall when you first became a believer, you might have been just ready to do anything and everything, go to the ends of the earth, whatever it took to serve Christ. And uh, that passion is common. That's common uh, in in many respects. You get a new job, you're really passionate about it. 30 years later, you don't care anymore. You know, people are like that. and so Paul reminds Timothy, he says, fan into flame. You know, when the fire starts to go out and it's down to embers, fan it back into a flame. And that's a calling for all of us. In fact, when you go to the book of Revelation, we see one of the churches there had lost their love and that they were to remember the love that they had at the first. And it's, it's that calling back to passion in serving Christ and loving Christ, that we need to to find a way through the reading of the scripture, through prayer, through our mutual edification, as we fellowship with other believers, we need to find a way to be passionate about what God's doing in the world again. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time on 90 Days New.